0: Hello, Chapel Hill friends and family. Welcome to our live service today. If you'd love to get connected to our church community, please contact us on our website. We'll love to connect with you. We are in our series on Acts of the Holy Spirit. And today we get to Acts chapter 5. And thus far in the book of Acts, it's been positive, it's been glowing, it's almost like a fairy tale. We see the ascension of Jesus Christ back to heaven. We see the coming of the Holy Spirit. And we see the early church that's full of life, full of generosity. The church has a great sense of grace and power. There's a great sense of selflessness. We've seen bold and courageous witness for Jesus. We get a picture of church that is a church that we all want, don't we? But now we get to chapter 5, and it raises one important question. What is the one thing that could destroy it all? What is the one thing that could tear apart and make impossible this wonderful kind of church community? Or we can ask the same question a different way. What is the one thing that Satan will do to destroy this kind of church community? Is it bringing sickness onto the church? Is it knocking out the church leaders with the coronavirus? Or is it division in the church? We might have our own personal experiences of how damaging that can be. Well, in Acts chapter 5, the one thing that will destroy the vibrancy of the church is hypocrisy. And we see it in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And the story of Ananias and Sapphira can be a hard story to grasp, because if you think of all the different people in the Bible, if you think of all the sinful people that is written in the pages of Scripture, all the disgusting, all the depraved, wicked things that we see in the pages of Scripture— how very few of them God strike them dead, and then we get to Ananias and Sapphira, and they lie on their giving, and then they drop dead. At first, it's hard to see the significance of how serious of a sin that they have committed that would merit the immediate judgment of God. But as we dig deeper into the story, we are going to see the ugly truth of hypocrisy. We're going to see how truly wicked hypocrisy really is. And we're going to to understand why God hates hypocrisy so much. And as a warning, as we uncover the truth about hypocrisy, I think it's going to make you sick in the gut to know and feel how awful hypocrisy really is. Because this is how I've been feeling every time I open to this text. Because the story of Ananias and a is here to scare you to death. It says in chapter 5, verse 11, as the conclusion of this story, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The aim of the story is to put the fear of God in us. But that is a good thing, because the fear of God will drive us to the grace of God in Jesus. The fear of God and the grace of God go hand in hand. And so as we work through today's text, we're going to see Barnabas as the example of genuine unity. Then we'll see Ananias' fear of sin of hypocrisy. Then I'll explain how the gospel can set us free from hypocrisy. So let's start with a positive example of Barnabas. In verse 32 of chapter 4, we'd read... All the believers were one in heart and in mind. And I find this a beautiful expression of their unity in faith and love in Christ as one in heart and mind. They were a closely knitted, spirit-filled church community. And their unity of heart and mind was expressed through generosity. So we read that all the believers were one in heart and mind, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they hired. Now, it can be easy to in- misinterpret this verse, thinking that the believers gave up their private ownership and see this as a kind of perhaps primitive Christian communism. And some even read this as a command or obligation for the church to model this. But as we read on, it's clear that the giving and sharing was voluntary not an obligation of church membership. And it's also clear with examples of property that private ownership wasn't blurred or shared. Property was sold for money, which could then be easily divided and distributed to those in need. And so the the wrong application to say is, what's yours is mine in a church, or to think that we can have co-ownership of each other's wealth. Rather, what this verse is saying is that whilst each other respected each other's private ownership of their possession, they did not regard their possessions as being exclusively for their own benefit. As the needs arose, they shared their possession to help and benefit others. They continued to own their own goods, yet in their heart and mind, they cultivated an attitude so radical that they thought their possessions as available to the help Of their needy sisters and brothers in Christ. So I hope that this gives a bit of clarity on this verse, but I also hope that this inspires us to have the heart and mindset to see our possessions as a way to also benefit others. So that when you purchase or rent your next property, you would consider not only your own needs, but also the needs of others when you're purchasing that next possession, to consider not only how it brings you great joy, but also being intentional on how you can share the joy of the possession with others. I mean, how enriching would our church community be if we could all benefit from each other's goods, wealth, and possessions? We're given the example of Barnabas as someone for us to aspire to. He sold a field and brought the money and he put it at the apostles' feet. And placing the money at the apostles' feet signified a humble giving that forego the usual social benefits of public praise and honor. His donation was a private contribution. And so with the example of Barnabas, Luke, the author of Acts, is encouraging others with wealth and status in the church to follow also in the example of Barnabas. But in contrast to Barnabas, we now read the negative example of Ananias and Sapphira. Chapter 5 we read, Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas is acting out of of a place of true generosity. Ananias and Sapphira are acting to appear generous. And that is what hypocrisy is. It's pretending. A hypocrite is someone who cares more about how she appears more than how she is. Hypocrisy is deceiving others with an image a picture, a vision, a version of yourself that you want to project for people to believe as the true you. And even right now, as we begin to talk about this, as I even raise this issue, some of you already perhaps are experiencing the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Because you know this is true of you. And if this is true of you, I just want to ask you to allow the Holy Spirit to do His work, because God wants you this morning to be set free from hypocrisy. Not judge us, not condemn us, but to set us free. And the starting point to let Jesus set us free from hypocrisy is to see how terrible hypocrisy truly is. Read with me verse 3. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? In this verse, Peter is equating hypocrisy with being satanic, being filled, being influenced by Satan, not the Holy Spirit, but Satan. Peter is saying that when you lie to reject a better image of yourself, you're actually not projecting a better image of yourself. Peter is saying you're actually projecting Satan. Why? Because we read in the Bible that Satan is called the father of lies. That should absolutely make us sick in the gut. Hypocrisy and pretending doesn't make you look more godly. It makes you look more like Satan. And that should absolutely shock and scare you. That truth alone should make us drop to our knees and run to Jesus to free us from hypocrisy. But Peter has more to say. He says hypocrisy is lying to the Holy Spirit. And again, he says in verse 4 What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. Hypocrisy is not just lying to other people, hypocrisy is also lying to our Creator, God. And notice the reason that Peter gives in verse 4 He says, Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? In other words, Peter's saying, Ananias, the property was yours alone the whole time. You were free to give it or not give it. You were free to sell it or not sell it. You were free to give all the proceeds or to just give some of the proceeds. There was no reason for lying. The problem was not the amount they gave. The problem was that they lied about how much they gave. Hypocrisy makes you dishonest because your motive is to be seen in a certain way and you start to create this make-believe world. And the really destructive thing about hypocrisy is that you begin to lie to yourself. And the text says you're ultimately lying to God. God will not play this game of pretending with you because what happens to Ananias, we read, is that he fell down and died. God hates hypocrisy, and he desires to put an end to it. So when our unbelieving friends cry out about how the church is full of hypocrites, we can agree with them with how awful hypocrites is, and we can take them to Acts chapter 5 here as the proof text that shows that God hates hypocrites too. And he's deadly serious about getting rid of hypocrites from the church. That's the second heavy blow from this text that shows us how awful the reality of hypocrisy is. Hypocrisy is lying to God. But Peter hasn't finished with us, Peter has one more punch to convict us of how wicked hypocrisy is. We read from verse 7 that three hours after Ananias died, Sapphira the wife comes in and Peter says to her, verse 9, Peter said to her, "'How could you conspire to test the Spirit of the Lord? "'Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door "'and they will carry you out also.'" The key word here is conspire. It tells us that no one just falls into hypocrisy. The wickedness of hypocrisy is the active, conspiring challenge against the Holy Spirit, who is the source of the church's life and holiness. Hypocrisy is actively conspiring, undermining, conspiring, working against the work of the Holy Spirit who is trying to bring about unity and authenticity in the church so that the church can be an authentic witness of the gospel to the world. Hypocrisy is premeditated deception. Hypocrisy makes you and I an active, conspiring agent against God, the Holy Spirit. Can you now understand why God treats hypocrisy so severely now? It's because hypocrisy is so much wicked. God strikes down Ananiasophia to protect the life and the vitality of the church, to protect the work of the Holy Spirit to protect the church's effective witness to the world. And this is what is making me sick in the gut. The greatest enemy to the Holy Spirit is our hypocrisy. And I'm cut to the heart as I say this. Hypocrisy conspires, tests, challenges, undermines the work of the Holy Spirit. Hypocrisy ruins fellowship and it ruins witness, And that is why hypocrisy is so wicked. That is why God hates hypocrisy so much. Honestly, I can no longer pick up this text and be just absolutely torn apart about the wickedness of our hypocrisy. That God created us so that we would image him. And then God sends graciously his son. But rather than image God, we image Satan. And then Jesus, in his love and grace, he sends us the Holy Spirit. And in our hypocrisy, we become enemy agents, conspiring and undermining the Holy Spirit. Lord, we we are so wicked. Friends, do you see that pretending is not just horizontal deceptions against others? It's a vertical assault against God. And it's cutting me to the heart. It's wrecking me to know how seriously awful our hypocrisy is to God. But friends, the good news is that Jesus died for pretenders. Jesus died for liars. Jesus died for hypocrites. Jesus died for us. And if you would humble yourself before him, he can set you free from the sin of hypocrisy. How does Jesus do this? Hypocrisy at its root is about self-justification. Hypocrisy at its root is saying, I will be in control on how I will look to people. Therefore, I will make myself right before people. I will justify myself. And here's the problem with self-justification. You make yourself look right, but you can't make yourself be right. That's the problem with hypocrisy. You know when you are living in hypocrisy, when you think you're looking right, but you know that you are not right. And that's why you play the game. You keep on pretending and lying because you know deep down that you are not right. But do you feel that? Do you feel the weakness of self-justification? You can't actually make yourself be right. All you can do is make yourself look right. It actually does have no reality. It has no power to do anything to make you right. And that is what Jesus does for you by his death and resurrection. He offers you and I justification by grace through faith. Jesus is the only one who can make you right before God the Holy Creator, the one that we've wronged in the first place by forgiving our sins, wiping away our guilt and shame. Jesus can actually make you be right, not just look right. So here are the two options, self-justification or justification by faith in Jesus. Self-justification does not work. All it does is make you look right. Jesus' justification, he offers you and I by his death, actually makes you right. And justification by faith in Jesus means resting in, trusting in, in what Jesus has done to make you right before God. And when I'm actually resting in that, this is what it does. It frees me to come clean and to be honest. There is nothing that people could possibly know about me that God doesn't already know, that he hasn't already forgiven. So then I can freely come clean. I can finally be who I am in Christ. All of the messiness, all of my brokenness, and all the areas that are getting sorted out in my heart and soul, it's okay to be that person. I don't have to pretend to be someone that I am not because Jesus has made me right before God. In Jesus, we can be honest and truthful, and it's not scary. It doesn't have to be embarrassing. It's just freeing to be who we really are in Christ. And notice that Ananias and Sapphira, they're Christians. They're part of the church. It wasn't that they didn't believe in Jesus, It wasn't that they didn't know the gospel. The problem was that they were living in unbelief. Even though they knew the gospel, they weren't gripped and transformed by the gospel. They might know justification by faith, but they weren't living out justification by faith. So they resorted to self-justification. They resorted to pretending and hypocrisy. It's probably the same for many of us. Jesus has died for you and I to set us free, and so there's no need for deception, no need for hiding, no need for pretending, no need to fake it. You can come just as you are to Jesus, and only Jesus can actually come for you to come as you are and just be free. Because look back at Acts chapter 4. The reason why the early church looked the way that it did was because they had such a great sense of freedom in Christ among them. Everyone was free to just be because they're resting, they're trusting in Jesus. And when there's that kind of freedom, generosity, honesty, contentment, joy, vibrant worship, courageous witness, all of that flows out of the freedom that we can have in Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the good news that is offered to you and I this morning. And the reason this story is here in the book of Acts is to put the fear of God in us so that we would run, absolutely run to the grace of God. To warn us about the danger of continuing to pretend and play games with God, which is really the danger of toying with religion rather than experiencing the power of the gospel. So this is the question that the text is wanting you and I to wrestle with. Does it matter how you look or does it matter how you are? Do you care more about how you look or do you care more about who you are? If your highest goal in life and your pursuit in God is to look like you have it all together, Jesus isn't going to play that game with you. Jesus will not help you to justify yourself because that dishonors him as the only true saviour. If you're pretending that it's no surprise that you're lacking spiritual vitality and power to change because Jesus is not going to play that game with you, God opposes the proud, but he lifts up the humble. You can keep on pretending and keep on playing with God, but listen, there is no life in that. There is no joy in that. There's no freedom in that. There's nothing that you can give generously to others in that. All it is, it's discouraging and it's defeating. It's just going to kill your life. But if you're done... If today you said, I'm done with trying to look righteous, and if you're ready to be righteous, to live out the full justification that Jesus offers you, that is the opportunity and that grace that Jesus is offering you today. Won't you do this this morning? Won't you embrace the freedom that Jesus offers you? Won't you embrace the full forgiveness that Jesus offers you? If you want that, then this is what it's going to feel like for some of you. It's going to feel like death. Because that is what it is. It's death to self. It's death to the false image that you are creating. It's death to the web of lies that you are spinning. And if you lived in that fake world for a very long time, it's going to be like the whole world is crashing on you right now. But here's the beauty of that. Jesus offers you a better world, the world of truth, the world of authenticity, the world of reality, a world that is so much better than the fake world that you are creating. And Jesus invites you to live in the real world as the real you, a broken sinner that is covered in God's grace and love. That is the real you. The text is inviting you to let God to put to death your hypocritical self and be born again, be raised up as one who is made right before God. Chapel Hill. I really do believe that this Sunday, this text is a pivotal moment for us. I believe that the Holy Spirit will usher in a new freedom, a new joy in the life of our church Usher in this vibrant reality if this week we put to death our hypocrisy by the power of the gospel through the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. This week what I hope to see is that this is going to be death week for us. From today and in community groups as we respond to God's word, I see there's going to be resistance for us to come clean. I see shame trying to hold us back, pull us back. But I see the Word and Spirit powerfully freeing us from the bondage of our guilt and shame. Free us by the gospel to cry, to mourn, to grief, the death of our lies, the death of our pretending, the death of our hypocrisy, and be resurrected together in new life and freedom and joy by the love of Christ, with the love of a church community that embraces and loves one another with the grace and love of Jesus Christ. And church, I am committed to be with you, to love you, to walk you through this death, to see new life born through you. Chapel Hill, please join me and the elders to grieve the death of hypocrisy so that we no longer grieve the Holy Spirit, and I know some of you, maybe you're upset. Maybe you're angry right now for what feels like dropping a massive bomb in your world. But, church family, I want to tell you that I'm not asking you to do what God hasn't done in my own heart by bombing and shattering my heart to pieces this week. I mean, Do you know how scary it is to have to preach this passage without searching my own hypocrisy in my own life? All week I've been confessing to God, asking him to search every corner of my soul for any falsehood. But I've come at the other end of it with great freedom, a renewed gratefulness for his grace and mercy, a renewed love for my Savior. We don't need to shield ourselves. We don't need to flinch We don't need to fear God, for God has already struck down His Son for us. Jesus stretched out His arm to shield us on the cross, to protect us, to let God strike Him down so that we would be made right and free. Hypocrisy is binding yourself your true self in Christ. Hypocrisy is binding your marriage. Hypocrisy is binding your family. But Jesus says, I have come to set you free. Free you from yourself. Free your marriage from falsehood and covering each other's up. Free your family and provide healing and restoration through truth. Chapel Hill, would you respond to the gospel? Would you yield to the Holy Spirit to not resist and let's strike dead hypocrisy so we would experience a new freedom, a new love, a new worship of God, our Redeemer, experience this new love and freedom and fellowship with one another as sinners saved by amazing grace. Let's pray. Father God, we confess the wickedness of our lying, our pretending, our hypocrisy. But we are amazed that Jesus has come to die for hypocrites like us, to set us free. And we ask that by your word and spirit, by the presence and power of you, God, by the Holy Spirit, you will free us, free us from lies, Free us from our projection of Satan. Free us from hiding and lying from you. Break those chains of guilt and shame so that we would be free in Christ. May we walk through death week this week in our community groups, so that by next Sunday we would praise your name, glorify the name of Jesus who is mighty to save, and free us from our sins. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.